Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. And as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. And she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Who touched me? Jesus asked. And when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know. Power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. And when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. And her spirit returned, and at once she stood up, and Jesus told them to give her something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly this morning. I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, and I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For we brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we carry nothing out. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Even so, the Spirit says, for they rest 
from their labors. These are the readings for the opening of a funeral from the Book of Common Prayer. And it's this morning that, that we uh, come together to worship, we come together to have a regular church, and we, it's also this morning that death interrupts. Um, death comes as an interruption. Death has robbed from us this morning in so many ways. As many of you know, Lisa uh, was, passed away this week, and so we come with heavy hearts, we come with sorrow, some of us come with anger, some of us come with questions, many of us come with pain, with the loss. And it's also one that came too early. We're going to talk about death today. This was, um, we've been going through a sermon series on, on the Domestic Monastery book and sort of asking the question of what does it look like to be an exile? For the church, as Israel before it, the world is always, in, in some ways, in pushing back. And so what did it mean for us to, to establish homes, in, in the words of Jeremiah, which we've read every week, to build houses and to settle down, to plant gardens and eat what they produce, to get married, to have children, to seek the peace of the city has been the question. But what Jeremiah leaves off, but we know happens in time and other parts of the Bible, talk about is that people die in exile. As Israel is rescued from slavery in Egypt and they walk into the desert, people die in the desert. People die in the length of time that we're in the spots that we're in. The question was how then to faithfully die. That was what the book raised for us. What does it mean to see our limitedness, to see the limits of life? And, and then for, for there to be a difference in the way that Christians die. Um, so much of our world, I, I don't know if, you know, um, I think over some, let's, 40%, let's just say, I think it's higher than that, of our medical expenses are spent on procedures that prolong life only six months. We live in such fear of death. We live in this, in this challenging time. There's a theologian who likes to ask people in the modern world how they'd like to die, and most people say painlessly in my sleep, um, and this, that, and the other. And what he says is, is that it's interesting because what it seems to suggest is that we don't want to be a burden to anyone, but also that we don't want to trust anyone. We want to die in a way that we don't know we're dying is another challenge. And he says it's a bit interesting because if you asked a medieval person or somebody before that, they'd want to die with enough time to make peace with their loved ones. It's the way he says it, he says to, to make peace with their enemies, which by that in medieval times meant your family. Um, uh, to be able to receive last rites. To be able to put your affairs in order. For them, a quick death was a scary death because you didn't know if you'd have time to do all that. There's a ritual to dying then. He actually says, incidentally enough, that the changes we've experienced might suggest that we no longer fear God, as the medieval person did, but we fear death. And how is it we come around on that? Before we go too far, there's one other thing I want to say um, 
and it's uh, the temptation we'll have to explain why this happens, to explain why death rears its ugly head and interrupts our lives. This is from an interview with the theologian Stanley Harwas, but it captures for me, I think, the space Christians can inhabit. Crucial for me is the presumption that the gospel story is a story meant to train us to live without explanation. Explanation presumes that if I can just account for why what happened did happen, then I will be able to live with what has happened. We presume that if we can explain why it happened, then we'll be able to live with it. In modernity, this hunger for explanation often takes the form of a mechanistic cause and effect relationship that ironically attempts to give people who have such a low view of the world the presumption that they are in control. If I could just explain it to you, two plus two equals four. And, and this is the hard part, this is not a quote, that somehow we think it would make it better. Like any answer or solution would somehow make these moments of mourning easier. I just don't think that's the hope we have. I think Christianity is the training to live, how to live without being in control. You learn to live in the silences. To learn to live patiently in a world where you have no answers, it seems to me to give you alternatives that would otherwise not exist through hope. That's uh, how I tried to conceive of what it means to live hopeless, hopefully without explanation. You don't have to explain the death of a child. That will kill you. That will kill you. We have this temptation to try and explain these things so that we can make peace with them, as if peace can come through explanation. As I was reading in preparation for this week, um, was, uh, two different thinkers. One was that we don't have an explanation, we have a story that we live into as Christians. We have a story of a God who goes to death and confronts it there that we live into those spaces, into those silences with that story. Flannery O'Connor said that it's not something to be explained, but a mystery to be endured. There's a lot of in that. Oftentimes we'll say, I don't know, it's a mystery. It's a type of explanation. But her words, that these things are a mystery to be endured to endure in the silences might be where we're able to live hopefully. So the question that the book asked um, as it was setting up that we had read is, is this, this notion of, of what does it mean to see life in its limits, the psalm that Emily read for us to say that you make it to 70 or 80, and to begin to be able to prepare your death. Be, be, to begin to be able to say, and he uses this phrase from Henry Allen, to, to die in a way that my life, my death, not my life, to die in a way that my death might be an optimal blessing to others. 
Now, this is perhaps the hardest part because I do want to cover some of that today. If, we, if today was supposed to be about death and we confronted death this week, it would seem weird to then not talk about death. So I do want to talk about some of that, but it's, it's partially hard for me to talk about because when I think about Lisa as she's been lost to us, if there's somebody who might model what it means to die faithfully, to ask the question, what would it mean to die in a way that my life is a blessing to others, that my death is a blessing to others, she would have been somebody I would have waited and longed to see that with. And yet we were robbed of that, and it was stolen from us, and death has interrupted. But that doesn't mean it's still not a question for some of us. Rollheiser, using the John of the Cross, talks about how these three phases of our lives that are pretty typical for most of us is the, the first is the dark night of the descenses, which he calls his essential discipleship. But this is where we sort of try and ground and figure out our lives. Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? What is my career going to be? How am I going to be in this way? And this is where we're setting the roots for ourselves so that we can sort of um, live our lives that this is the spot of life in which we all go through in which we're trying to, or many of us go through in this order, we try and figure these things out. It's essential. There's not much of a choice here. And the questions during this period are often, if, if you're going through this, and, and John of the Cross and Rollheiser are trying to ask, how do we do this Christianly? Like the question going through this is, is what training might I receive? What college might I go to? Which person that might I marry? So that my life can then be lived in service that I might give away some, that, that, that you're grounding these things, figuring these questions out so for the purpose of loving God and loving your neighbor and to be that type of person, but these are essential things that must be done. And so we go through this phase. The second phase he causes is where we're trying to learn proficiency. This is what uh, Rollheiser then calls general discipleship. I found my house, I found my home, I found my partner, if I'm called to one, my, my spouse. I found um, my child. I found myself in a spot. And so in this question, we ask, how sort of will I give my life away out of that, now that I have grounding, that, that now that I've settled into this place? Um, this, I think, one um, is challenging today because we live such nomadic lives. So many people, I don't think, ever feel that way. I think part of it has to do with our own choices. I mean, I don't think it's like I just need to keep moving and climbing the ladder. But, but I think if we view these things properly and, and what that psalm that Emily read for us today, to, to number our days, it might give us the reset to say up and to the right isn't the only way life goes as if it were a graph. That we might choose limits. The question in this phase is how am I faithful to the commitments I've made? to my marriage partner, to my children, to my friends, to the people that surround me, to my church, to my job? How do I live faithfully and give away my life in those places? The last one, John of the Cross, calls the dark night of the spirit. This is in chapter 8 of the book, if you still have it. You can review it there. But the dark night of the spirit, which is radical discipleship, is where that question that Nowen asks is, how do we die in such a way that our deaths are an, optional, uh, an optimal blessing to our loved ones? This is the hardest, because I think in the modern world, we often live as our lives are limitless. 
no end shall come for me. You find this, too, in the way in which um, uh, the nice senior facilities are being designed so that you can live your best life now until you are 70 or 80. There's no question of how we might live into that. There's, a, there's an interesting thing um, about empty nesters. Uh, um, they, what we call um, emerging adolescence, which is the phase of life I think I've gratefully ended, or sorry, it's, <laughs> it's called emerging adulthood. What it means is prolonged adolescence, but they thought that people like me would be offended if they called it prolonged adolescence, which I would be. So they were nice enough to call it emerging adulthood. Um, doesn't that sound so much sweeter? Um, but what we find with people entering that empty nesting phase of life is how much they enter into their own period of reverse adolescence. We stayed married for the kids. It's now, t- it's now my time. It's now for me to be able to live the way I want. Now that I've done my commitment, you're 18 or you finish college, kids will often hear, it's time for me to be myself. There's no question of how my death might be an optimal blessing for those who I'll leave behind. The older age of life becomes a time to reclaim ourself. We're not asking that question of radical discipleship. Incidentally, in Oregon here, in Washington, when marijuana became legal, the biggest users and purchasers were people in that age range. Um, uh, let's go back to the Eagles concert or whatever their drug of choice was, not being marijuana, their other drug of choice was, and pretend that we still live in that space. More and more drugs we want to solve the problems of aging. More and more we just want these things. We can't see our limits in this way. This is why I think it's called radical discipleship or the dark night of the spirit. How, as we approach that moment, might we do that? Again, this is one of the harder ones to talk about because I think when I think about Lisa's care, commitment, and faithfulness, the way in which she was there for others, she would model this well for us to see. But as we were talking about this at the book study, um, several of the younger people at my end of the table said they had never seen this. If you're in the modern world, most of the time the only people you'll see pass away are your grandparents, young, and then your parents, older. So the idea of what does it mean to look like to prepare for death, it it always comes so foreign to us. We don't live in communities where we're often going to funerals. We we push our seniors off into nursing homes. They're they're sort of congregated in different ways. Then in my last church, uh, the nursing home had its own church service, so the people didn't go off to other ones, which in one sense was a blessing for the people who couldn't leave the grounds, but in another sense was denying everybody else the witness these people had and seeing them live the end of their life faithfully. And I was sitting there at that end of the table talking about that, and I was remembering that my life was that way as well until I had served in my last church. I had never really seen anybody die. And, and, and oftentimes, it's the only other one we have is, are the interruption ones, like the one that came for Lisa, is that, that we have tragic death, but we have nobody who, who models what it's like to die well. 
to die, in some sense, a good death. Um, but I, there were people there who, who died that way. And it was good for me and for Kelly and us to be able to see. There were people who put their affairs in order so that what they had would be an optimal blessing for those who came after them. They worked towards reconciliation in their relationships with people. They modeled care for other people at that limit of life too. It was often when I would sit with those seniors towards the end of their lives at my last church, they were afraid to die, not because of death, but because who would visit the one that they had been visiting? Who would be there for the one that they had been caring for? Oftentimes, they had older adult children that they weren't as worried about, but occasionally there was one whom things didn't work out for appropriately. Who would be there for them? And so they set their life, more appropriately their death, in such a way that it could be a blessing to these people. And it was uh, one of these funerals um, that me and my, uh, the senior pastor did um, that uh, it was just life exuding from it because of the way this person had lived. It was so much so that I came away with this belief that it's important that the person who preached at the funeral remind you of something that made them human. Otherwise, you might think that they were too perfect. Um, for this man, having known him a short time, I was like, it would be hard but I think it was important for that. And it was incidentally talking to his children afterwards. I mentioned that to them, and they were like, oh, yeah, we wished he had been humanized a little in his passing. We didn't forget that on purpose or out of malice. It was just sort of this is who this person was throughout their lives um, and the challenges that come with naming that. There's, that chapter starts um, with the author visiting an older monk and he says do you still wrestle with satan and he says no i wrestle with god he says with god you hope to win and he says no i hope to lose um but my bones are still with me and i resist but i hope to lose with god we're talking about that at book or at house church and what it said to me was what satan doesn't have a lot of temptation for 80-year-olds. Not because you, you, you're not tempted, but because he's either won or lost in your life at that point. It's, it's that losing to God where victory will come at that moment. Some people have so made themselves angry or resentful or controlling, or blaming of other people that are lustful, or consuming of all their own lust, that as they get older, that's just what comes out of them. Some people who resisted earlier in their lives have become so loving and kind and sharing that it would be a loss for Satan to try again at that age. It's for them to lose to God. Again, it's not hard for me to think of the one we lost on how she might model that well for us as well. Um, because if you think of the type of person you are as what comes out of you when you pass, 
in that way. It would have been something to see. Um, then the last thing for today, and it's not, it's three things, so don't get your hopes up, um, uh, is I want to talk about these three ways in which sort of death relates to us. Um, this I was planned earlier in the week, but takes up a bigger spot, I think, uh, with what happened. And, and there's these three kinds of death that we confront, sort of. Um, there's, there's death, small d, lowercase, death. There's capital D, death. And then for the Christian, there is the death in Christ, the faithfulness. The first one, lower d, death, is this... The book of Genesis, it says that my spirit will not reside in humans forever. That we are grass and we wither away. That we are creatures, finite and with limits. This is just part of what it means to be alive. Life, in some sense, is defined by birth and death. They are the things that make what we call life life. Um, And so this first death is that very natural one. And in in cases like the ones that I talked about with the ones, uh, the people who are able to prepare for it and prepare for it well, um, it can almost be greeted as a good end to the story. It can almost be seen as the resolve. For people who suffer immensely towards the end of their life, or sadly, their whole lives, um, this kind of death can also be received as some of grace, as some of, a, of that this is right for this time, that we don't live forever in these pains and in these agonies and in these trials. This, this death also has um, two, in the words of Psalm 90, which we'll revisit again at the end in the reading from Luke, but the this death has um, a way in which we can be taught wisdom or we can use it as an invitation to sin. It's not entirely neutral, this death, either. There are people who say, teach me the number of my days so I can set my heart to wisdom. This natural death is coming. But then there are people, like a friend I had in college. This is a real friend. Well, I don't know if I'd call him a friend now. But um, he thought that it, his was, it was his responsibility, knowing that he would die someday, to never turn down the invitation to sleep with someone. Because he didn't want to die, knowing that limits, life has limits and that life ends that way, knowing that he had not had as much sex as possible. There's a way in which this type of death also pushes us towards folly. Sad I knew someone like that. But we see it in less obvious forms. I want to consume as much as possible. I want to make sure I've traveled to every place I've ever wanted to travel. I want the biggest bank account I could have. I want to keep setting all that stuff to secure my life and my death in that way. This is the type of death that motivates us in destructive ways too. For Christians to be the ones who say, teach us to number our days so that we can set our heart to wisdom. Capital D death is one that we are never friends with. 
This is the one that interrupted our week this week, in which we will deal with the fallout from for a long time. This is the one that robs from us and aims to take territory in life. This is the one that was unleashed in the fall. This is the one that Paul calls the great and last enemy of God. This is the one that is destroyed in the end. This death always takes It's never to be received well. It's never to be made peace with. We recently read this this quote from Nicholas Waltersdorf, but when he lost his son, he said, somebody said to his wife, Claire, I hope you're learning to live at peace with Eric's death. Peace, shalom, shalom. Shalom is the fullness of life in all dimensions. Shalom is dwelling in justice and delight with God, with neighbor, with oneself and nature. Death is Shalom's mortal enemy. Death is demonic. We cannot live at peace with death. When the writer of Revelation spoke of the coming day of Shalom, he did not say that on that day we would live at peace with death. He said on that day there will be no more death or mourning or crying and pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I shall try to keep the wound from healing in recognition of our living still in the old order of things. I shall try to keep from to keep from it I shall try to keep it from heal, healing in solidarity with those who sit beside me on humanity's morning bench. This capital D death is the one we respond to in this way. There is no round that this death comes to destroy comes to take from us our delight and aims in many ways to set us against God too. This is the one whom he says the wages of sin are death. Which brings us to the final one, which is the death of the faithful in Christ. O death, where is thy sting? Death, where is thy victory? In Christ, uh, I can't remember said this, in Christ there is the death of death. Death dies with Christ. The enemy we spoke of in the last one and this one is conquered by him. This is the one in which he destroys that. He defeats this one. As we are united with him in death, we are united with him in resurrection. Death for the faithful one in Christ includes this encompassing within what Christ has done for us. Here we find ourselves drawn into, and every year I read the Easter sermon, but O death, where is thy sing? O hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of death. For Christ, having risen from the dead, to become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For the death in Christ, we await this resurrection, this life, in which he will bring us back up from that. So we are united with him in death. We are raised into new life with him. 
Which brings us to the two readings from this morning, just to, uh, to talk about briefly. The first one that had that teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90 has this amazing part in which half of it is in the book of Ecclesiastes. Half of it is in this futility. Half of it is in that God's anger has turned towards us, that we are people who are, who are bound in limits, and that this is where we are. It's, and it's amazing because it's doing it faithfully. It's not upset at this is the order of things, but it faithfully is saying, um, we turn to dust. This is our life. We are swept away in death. We're consumed in anger and indignation, in your anger and indignation. And yet, what happens at this point where we are told to teach, for God to teach us to number our days, that we may gain a house of wisdom, it turns. If it's as if it has half of its foot, um, or one foot, <laughs> not half of its foot, one foot in, in, in Ecclesiastes and the other book in the book of Revelation, it, that, that, that it proclaims this fullness on the other side. It says, relent, Lord, how long will it be that this is the way things are? How long will this be? Have compassions on your ser- servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. For us to be taught to number our days so that we may be glad in them. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be sown in your servants, your splendor in their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. The psalm that begins and honestly confronts death. Establish the work of your hands for us. Yes, establish the work of your hands for us. We're caught in this, this, these three deaths or this way in which we need to exist in mourning and conflict with death. And yet we always have that other side as well. For the dead of the faithful in Christ. This comes even more amazingly up in our story from the Gospel of Luke. It's a story of interruption. It's a story of death. It's a story of new life. But these three phrases, and this is the order that they appear in, always stick out to me. The older woman who touches his his cloak and is healed. She begins to testify about it, and he says to her daughter, which is and amazing because the guy who came to her at the beginning, his daughter is sick. The woman who interrupts Christ, who receives healing around, along the way on his journey to that place, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. For the Christian, we've felt this touch. We may not all have been miraculously healed. That's not my story either. But in some sense, in wanting to get in on this thing and receiving baptism and practicing this way, we hear that God has healed us. And our next challenge is to go in peace. But at the moment that life is breaking into the world, these people come from where the woman has died and they report to him that your daughter is dead. This too is where we live our lives. 
as we hear news reports of that faith has healed, which is not covered in the news, but in our lives, we also get reports that death has shown its ugly head again. That death has come. Your daughter is dead. So much so that when Christ shows up at the tomb or at the, where the little girl is dead, that there's um, almost jeering at him for thinking that he can raise her. It's a futility of death in our world. And yet, for the Christian, what we await, what our hope is in, what our longing is in, is for as though we may die, that we may hear rise, sleeper, rise from the dead, the light of Christ shine in you, that God will speak to us again. My child, get up. The house of death is no longer a house of death, but turned to a house of joy. All three of these we live in, all three of them have real emotional death. There is nothing about your daughter is dead that you can make peace with, as Walter Sturff said. Doesn't deny that we wait to hear, my child, get up. Us rise. Our loved ones who have passed get up. That we might be risen to new life in that way. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's Paul writing in Romans. That this love is stronger than death is the good news for us. In the back of the bulletin is, is the quote uh, for this Sunday, um, which comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, it's the first question. I think it's important that it's the first question because it sets the tone in so many ways. But what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair shall fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his spirit, assures me of eternal life. and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. We are creatures. We are not our own. But we belong body and soul and life and death. As Lisa know, and as a reminder for at least the new, and as a reminder for us, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, whose love is stronger than death. For the prayer, as we pray to end, if you would join me in praying this prayer, this is uh, from the evening uh, Compline service. It's attributed to St. Augustine, but it was definitely not written by St. Augustine. Um, but uh, if we could pray this prayer together, this is what you pray at the end of night um, in that service. It's the last prayer before bed. 
Um, but pray that prayer together as we think about those in our lives, and then we'll, the music team will come up and we'll close with a song. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night, and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ, give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for love's sake. Amen. Amen. God, you have called us together as your people today, as your people in mourning, as your people confronting death again, as your people hearing the sad news that one has died. May our hearts be drawn at this time both to what we've received in you. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Son, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. May we also be drawn our hearts upward as they can, not away from the darkness that's come in our lives, but to the joyous good news that we will hear my child get up. And the house of sorrow will be transformed into a house of feasting in your presence. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.